Welcome to New Testament Talk, the podcast that talks about the first century revelation of God and how it continues to impact us in the 21st century. I am your host, Pastor Fred Roberts. Grab your Bible and join me as we talk about life in the New Testament. Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, today we're going to finish off chapter 5. And um, you say, boy, how are we going to do that? Usually you can go one verse and basically take all hour doing that. Um, but uh, I'm going to speak fast. You listen fast and uh, we should get through this together. All right. So Matthew chapter 5, we read already verse number 20, which basically says this. For I say unto you that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. And I think Jesus right here is is setting up the whole rest of this, this uh, well, pretty much the whole sermon. Because a lot of what he deals with is the personal righteousness uh, that we are to have. Uh, the goal that is being presented here is to enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, let me just clarify uh, something really quickly. We are not interested in the kingdom of heaven. We are interested in the kingdom of God. And there's, there's a difference between the two. Uh, the kingdom of God is uh, all this, the sphere of people, things that, that submit to God. Uh, this is true in heaven. This is true in earth. Okay? The kingdom of heaven is an earthly uh, kingdom. Okay? Uh, it is the kingdom of David re- restored. Uh, and that's not going to happen until Jesus comes back. But in Matthew chapter 4... Jesus began to preach. Let's see, where, where does it say it? Oh, verse 17. He says, From that time Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He preached what's called the gospel of the kingdom. All right. So when Jesus was on earth, at the beginning of his ministry, he preached a lot about the kingdom of heaven, about the, the ushering in, of the kingdom of, of David and the restoring of Israel to its its uh, exalted place in the nations, all right? Um, and there's a reason for that. He is the Messiah, okay? He is the Messiah, and the Jewish people should have accepted him, all right? Now, I want to be careful because there are a lot of false doctrines that, that pertain to this, and I don't want to fall off and I don't want you to be misled. You're going to hear people talking about the king, gospel of the kingdom and the dispensations and blah, blah, blah. And I don't want you to get confused. Everything is according to God's plan. God's not, you know, God didn't have a, a plan A and a plan B. <laughs> All right? God has his plan. And he's working his plan perfectly. Everything's going according to God's plan. Okay? So... There was never a time going to happen that Jesus, on his first coming, was going to be accepted as the Messiah. He was going to usher in the kingdom of David. That was never going to happen because Jesus had to die on the cross. Otherwise, there is no salvation. There is no being right with God. If Jesus didn't die on the cross, nothing else would have mattered. He had to die on the cross. So, so... And, and it, this wasn't a bunch of, of parlor tricks and shell games and all that kind of stuff. This was all part of the plan. This is God doing what he's supposed to do. But having said that, 
You need to understand that when Jesus is preaching here, he is preaching about the kingdom of heaven. All right? He is preaching about that. And that's what's drawing the, the disciples and all the people, you know, because they, are, they, they want this. Uh, the Jews want it to today. They still want it. Uh, the Jewish commentary that I listen to is, is uh, you know, he says every once in a while he gets on, on to, you know, the Messiah and the blessed Messiah. And they're, they're, like, they're like looking forward to the time when the Messiah comes, all right? He's just confused. He doesn't understand the Messiah already came. <laughs> and he was rejected of men, which is exactly what the Bible says is going to happen and did happen, okay? So to reiterate this, Jesus... And, you know, explains this in Matthew chapter 12, I'm sorry, Mark chapter 12, uh, where he gives this parable about exactly this happening. Uh, Mark chapter 12, uh, verses 1 through 11. And um, here's what he says. In Mark chapter 12, <clears throat> and he began to speak unto them by parables. This is the parable. He says, a certain man planted a vineyard and set a hedge about it, and digged a place for the wine vat, and built a tower, and led it out to husbandmen, and went into a far country. And at the season he sent to the husband, husbandmen a servant, that he might receive from the husbandmen of the fruit of the vineyard. And they caught him, and beat him, and sent him away empty. And again he sent unto them another servant. And at him they cast stones, and wounded him in the head, and sent him away shamefully handled. And again he sent another, and him they killed and many others, beating some and killing some. Having yet therefore one son, his well-beloved, he sent him also last unto them, saying, They will reverence my son. But those husbandmen said among themselves, This is the heir, come let us kill him, and the inheritance shall be ours. And they took him and killed him and cast him out of the vineyard. What shall therefore the Lord of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the husbandmen and will give the vineyard unto others. And have ye not read this scripture? The stone which the builders rejected is become the head of the corner. And this, this was the Lord's doing, and it, was, and it is marvelous in our eyes. So this is a parable that Jesus is giving of what exactly was happening when he came. So you see, the, the, the man who owned the vineyard was talking about God. And Jesus is that well-beloved son that God has sent to his people that he lent out the, the, the vineyard to, and the Jews killed him. You know, so this is what's happening, okay? This is not a surprise to God. Right. It, it's, it's not like, you know, you know he had to have come up with plan B. <laughs> this is all planned and part of the plan of God. So um, don't, get, don't get messed up on the, these doctrines. And these people sound smart, and they sound, you know, really wise and... And, you know, they, they will fool you if they can. Uh, but I, I just want to throw that out there. The earthly kingdom of, of heaven, the entrance into that was believed to be based on merit. All right? Even today, the Jews believe that their relationship with God is based on merit. How closely they follow the law. How many mitzvahs they do, they perform. Are they, are they faithful in performing all the mitzvahs? I mean, uh, this is the, what they talk about. This is what they, they focus on. And it's all based on merit. You know, Abraham was the friend of God because he merited it, that. You know, David was the king because he had more merit than Saul. You know, so forth, on and on it goes. And it's all based on a merit type of salvation. 
But we all know that that's not the way to be saved. Amen. You know, you're not saved by works. Right. That's not by works of righteousness that we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. Yeah, it's not based on my merit. I can't earn it, okay? But at this point, when Jesus is talking to his disciples, they've been taught all of their life that you have to merit entrance into the kingdom of heaven. You have to merit entrance into God's favor, okay? And so that's what they believed. So here he is. He is beginning the process of changing their mind on this. And this is what he says. He says, except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. <laughs> Here's what he's saying. He said, everybody who gets the kingdom of heaven, their righteousness has to exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. He says, there's not a back door. There's not an exception clause. There's not a loophole that you're going to find. You know, if your righteousness does not exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not be in the kingdom of heaven. Now, when he was preaching this to the, 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 the mass of, of people that were there, they had to be like, you know, what hope is there? You know, the scribes and the Pharisees were considered the most righteous people in the land. All right? They were the top dogs when it comes to following the law. The scribes, the scribes were the ones whose responsibility it was to copy the scriptures. Now, when I say that that was a very meticulous uh, enterprise, that is not selling it <laughs> for what it really was. Every day when they got up to go perform their duties as a scribe, they would first, in walking from their home to the place that they go, they would first bathe, put on new clothes, new clothes. They would, you know, go in and they would make sure they have a brand new quill, brand new ink, all right? They would start the process. If they made a mistake, they put, a, they put too much ink on the paper, they scribbled something accidentally, all right? They would stop, throw away the pen, throw away the ink, burn the, the scroll. They would go out, take another bath put on new clothes and come back in and start again. Okay? I can't write anything without messing up. I mean, I would get zero done in the course of a day. I mean, so, yeah, it would really be bad. You know, in writing my name, sometimes I forget the D. <laughs> you know, I'm just, you know, just, just, you know, and then I go, oh, D. Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, and, uh, you know, so it would really be bad. I would never make it as a scribe. Now, because of their meticulousness, and because they had to make sure, well, let's talk about this. They had to make sure that it was correct in every way. So when they would write it, when they copied the, the text from the other Bible that they're copying it from, they, for each line, they had a count for the number of letters in that line. That had to match what was over here. Each letter also represented a numerical value. So they would have the first check to make sure that they had the same number of letters. Then they would go through and they would calculate the total value of all of the words. Hmm. All right? So two things. Each word has a numerical value. 
and then the total line would have a numerical value. They would compare that with the numbers they got on the original. If they didn't match, this thing would be destroyed. They would go clean themselves, start again. All right. So they are paying attention to every letter. They are paying attention to every line. So these scribes knew their Bible. <laughs> they were the premier, the preeminent Bible scholars of that day. They knew how many letters are in the book of Isaiah. I mean, I don't know how many letters are in the book of Isaiah. I don't know how many letters are in the book of, you know, Jude. <laughs> I mean, um, I have no clue. But they knew. They knew the numerical value of the words that were in their books. So, yeah, when Herod wanted to know where the Messiah was going to be born, he called the scribes. And they told them exactly. They quoted the verse. Boom. This is he's going to be born in Bethlehem. They were the Bible scholars. Because of that, they knew what the law taught. They followed the law. They knew exactly what offering that they had to offer. If they committed a certain sin, they knew exactly what offering they were supposed to offer. They knew what feasts were coming up. They knew how to get the feasts, how, how to prepare for the feasts, when the feasts were supposed to happen. They knew all of that. I mean, just boom, 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 boom. Because this is all they did every day of their life. They were considered righteous people. The Pharisees were a strict sect of Judaism. They believed that the Bible wasn't written just to give us guidelines and principles. That the Bible was written to control our life. To dictate how we live. So they said we have to put this in practice. Now, they are, they're not scribes. Ezra was a scribe, and he started this whole process of the scribe practice. But they were followers of the teachings of Ezra. So they believed that if God said you're supposed to tithe, you tithe. They believed that God said you're supposed to um, abstain from something, they abstained from it. They, they didn't make allowances, they didn't, they didn't justify things. They did exactly what the Bible says. All right? Very strict. In fact, Paul in Acts chapter 26 says that it's the straightest sect. In other words, it's the most strict of the, of the different types of Judaism. All right? The different types of uh, Jews. These were the strictest out of all of them. All right? So they were considered very righteous. Jesus, in describing their righteousness in Matthew chapter 23, um, he described it like this. He says, well, first of all, when in Matthew chapter 23, he's pronouncing woe upon them. And he says, woe unto you scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin and have omitted the weightier matters of the law, judgment, mercy, and faith. These ought ye to have done, and not to leave the other undone. Now, so here's what he's saying. He's saying, you guys are so particular that you tithe of the mint in your gardens. Now think about that. In order to tithe of the mint in your gardens, that means you have to be paying attention to how much mint you have. <laughs> they, would, they would count the leaves on their herbs to make sure that they gave exactly a tenth of the herbs that grew in their garden. Yeah. You know, 
their anise, their cumin. I mean, all these different herb plants that, they, that, they, that they're growing in their gardens. They made sure that they tithed those plants. So they did everything. I mean, if it was cattle, they tithed their cattle. You know what? If they're out there counting the leaves on their little plants to make sure that they do it, you better believe they're, they're serious about that. But Jesus says you forget, you, you, you passed over the weightier matters of the law. The more important things. They're focusing on, on these, these things that aren't as important, um, which he says you should do that, but you shouldn't leave the other ones undone. You're focusing on the minor things and you're leaving the major stuff undone. Okay? But that's how righteous they were. And when he's telling the people, the average person, you know, the fishermen who's out there, you know, spends all day in, at, at the sea, you know, fishing, mending nets, you know, he comes back, he's exhausted. You think he has time to count how many leaves are on his, his uh, mint plant? <laughs> no, he, he's exhausted. He's tired. He's not doing that, you know. So now here, Jesus is saying, you've got to be better than the scribes and the Pharisees. What? What in the world? So this is all of the, the, the preliminary. Jesus is now going to give them examples. Now, let me just say this. The purpose that Jesus has in doing this is to show them that it's not about external righteousness that they need to be focused on. It's internal righteousness. The problem is the scribes and the Pharisees, even though they were externally doing all these really good things, inside they were corrupt. They'd never been changed on the inside. You read the rest of Matthew chapter 23 and Jesus starts focusing on it. He says, he says you're like, you're like a, a, a whited sepulcher. You know, on the outside you look beautiful, bright, shiny, beautiful. But on the inside you're full of dead men's bones, corruption, decay. You know, and that's the whole point. The point was they, they cleaned the outside of the bowl but left the inside dirty. I mean, what good is that? I mean, honestly speaking, if you were going to eat out of a bowl, wouldn't you rather that the inside be clean? <laughs> you know, that's the part you're worried about. Now, ideally, the whole thing gets cleaned. <laughs> you know, uh, I, I'd like it all to be clean, you know, to be honest with you. But uh, you know what? Jesus is pointing out that it's not the external signs of righteousness that matter. It's the internal. And if he can make people realize and understand that they can't do it on their own. The whole purpose of this is to show them they need a savior. By the way, that's what the law is all about. The law is not about show, telling me how to, how to live. It is about that. But that's not the whole point of it. The whole point of it is me looking at the law and saying, man, I need help. I need a savior. I need a savior. Because I am going to mess this up. I'm going to mess this up. So, Jesus is giving this for that purpose. Now, he goes into six examples of how their righteousness is supposed to be better than the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. These are just six examples. The the, the principles apply to everything. Okay, The principle that we're talking about applies to a whole law. But he gives six of the most personal examples. And the reason why he does this is because these are the hardest ones for people to get, all right? Now, each of these has a certain uh, way that he deals with it. First, he deals with what's being said, all right? He doesn't deal with what the law says, you know, because 
you know, like he said before, he that teacheth men to not observe the laws, you know, he's the least in the kingdom of heaven. Um, that's not the point. But the point is what they're being told. Okay? And so each time he says, ye have heard it has been said. This is what you heard people telling you. All right? And then he says, but I say. This is what they're saying, the scribes and the, and the Pharisees, and this is what I say. All right? And so he has that format for each of these uh, examples. And when Jesus gives his, his version, it goes beyond the strict observance of the law. It goes into the heart. And you'll see. The first one is about anger. So let me read for you verses 21 through 26. It says this, Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not kill. And whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. But I say unto you, that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whosoever shall say to his brother, Rekha, shall be in danger of the council. But whosoever shall say, Thou fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. Therefore, if thou bring thy gift to the altar, and there rememberest that thy brother hath aught against thee, leave there thy gift before the altar, and go thy way. First be reconciled to thy brother, and then come and offer thy gift. Agree with thine adversary quickly, whilst thou art in the way with him, lest at any time the adversary deliver thee to the judge, and the judge deliver thee to the officer, and thou be cast into prison. Verily I say unto thee, thou shalt by no means come out thence, till thou hast paid the uttermost farthing. All right, so let's break this down just a little bit, and then we have to go quick. First of all, the scribes and the Pharisees said, thou shalt not kill. So as long as they didn't kill people, it didn't matter, right? According to their standards, you know, hey, as long as I don't kill somebody, I'm okay. But I can be, I can be mad at that person. I could, I could call them and treat them you know, with derision and, and all this kind of stuff. You know, I don't have to be nice to them. You know what? Hey, you're lucky I'm not killing you, you know? You know? That, that, this was their attitude. Yeah. This was their standard of righteousness. Right. Jesus said, no. That's not the standard. You can't be angry with your brother without cause. Right. Now, we talked about this a little bit in, in the Bible study. Um, he specifically says, without cause. Uh, you can be angry for a cause, if there's a reason for it. But, you know, th- this, this business of, you know, just being mad, just being angry... Um, especially you know, people get mad because they feel guilty. You ever had somebody who, who uh, just treated you bad and, and you never really did anything to them? Um, oh, yeah. What is that about? Well, they're, they're mad at you because you remind them of somebody else. Or, or they think that they know what type of person you are. Okay. You know, this is what Jesus is talking about. Yeah. This, this being mad at somebody without a cause. This person hasn't injured you in any way. This person hasn't done anything wrong to you in any way. You know, but you're mad at them anyway. You know, this angry without a cause. He says, in, in, in the kingdom of heaven <laughs> realm, that's just as bad as killing somebody. How, say, how can you say that? Well, because thou shalt not kill. Whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. Remember what, what it said? He says, no. If you're angry with your brother without cause, you're in danger of the judgment. Hold on. <laughs> now, that's a lot worse. You know? So, wait a minute. I, I'm going to have the same penalty for a murderer if I'm just angry at somebody without a cause? Yeah. See? Exceeding the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. All right. In fact, he goes a step further. In fact, if you say Reka to somebody, Raka, Reka, I'm not sure if I got the pronunciation exactly right, you're going to be in danger of the council. Now, here's the difference between that. The judgment is a local court, all right? 
You know, so the the priests of your village, the religious people of your village, they have like a little, they would call together a little court, and they would bring you up into judgment. If you're guilty, then you have to do whatever they say, okay? Um, but the council, that's a big deal. That's the Sanhedrin. That means you're going to Jerusalem, and you're going to answer for your crimes in front of the the, like the Supreme Court. Yeah, it's like the Supreme Court. I was thinking about yeah. like land use. <clears throat> it's like the local planning commission are going to the... The Supreme Court, yeah. The, this is a big deal. You, you're, you're not giving an account for yourself now to the local yokels. You're going to the top dogs. You know, the most important judgment in the, in the, the country. All right? Uh, so what does it mean to say reka? It's like calling someone an idiot. When you... When you the word reka means... Empty, no value. When, when you when you say that someone doesn't have any any value, they're, they're not helpful. You know, they're they're no good. All right, this is what that's talking about. So me just being mad at somebody, you know, I can still recognize that they have some value. I can still recognize that they're you know they're just they're just not doing things the way I would think they should be done. But you know what? When I get mad, I'm like, man, you're an idiot. You ever heard someone say that? Mm-hmm. You, know, you, you you can't do anything right. You know, you can't get out of your own way. <laughs> you know, stuff like that. Okay? That is what Jesus is talking about. And Jesus is saying, if you do that, you're you're gonna go to the council. You're gonna answer to the country's highest court. But that's not all. If you say, Thou fool, you're in danger of hellfire. You're in danger of hellfire. So this is the highest. I mean, there's no... Hellfire is the worst punishment. The, there is nothing beyond that. You know? And thou fool, when, when you made that statement, that's where you're not just saying that the person has no merit, has no value. Now you're saying not only do they not have value, but they're also wicked and evil on top of it. Mm-hmm. So this, this is like even worse. You're, you're worse than an idiot. <laughs> You know, because an idiot at least isn't harmful. You know, they're no good. They're useless. They're worthless. I can't, can't, you know, th- why do you do with them? You know, but you are not only useless and worthless, but you're harmful. You're actually hurting by being here. You're causing more harm. You know, that's what you say when you, when you say thou fool. Now, I don't know what an equivalent expression of that is in our day and time. All right. I mean, I can't think of. How would you say that? Um, you know, but uh, that's the thought that Jesus is getting across here. If you were to go that far and to consider somebody not only useless, but harmful even, when you get to that point in your anger and your frustration and your, your uh, negative feelings toward them, then you know what? You are in danger of hellfire. And all this is way before you get to the point of killing them. You know, Way before that point. Jesus is saying, your righteousness has to exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. Notice what he says in verses 23 and 24. He says, therefore, if thou bring thy gift to the altar, and there rememberest that thy brother hath aught against thee, leave there thy gift before the altar, go thy way, first be reconciled to thy brother, and then come and offer thy gift. In other words, the religious sacrifices, the, the religious ceremonies that people do, right. he said those aren't important. Right. If you're right in the middle of going to church or right in the middle of doing something for God or right in the middle of, of offering something and you remember, 
that you did something wrong to your brother. Right. Now, by the term of that brother, it doesn't mean flesh and blood, kin. It's talking about, you know, your neighbors, your, your people that you, you are a part of, your people, okay? Um, he says, if you remember that your brother has a reason to be upset with you, he says, leave your gift. Just stop doing what you're doing and go and get that right. Go and get that right before God, before your, your brother and get that reconciled. Then come back and offer your gift to God. All right. See, this is kind of one of those areas that people are, well, wait a minute. Shouldn't, shouldn't we make sure we're right with God before we worry about our relationship with our brother? No. You can't be right this way if you're causing them to violate this commandment. Now notice here, it doesn't say if you have ought against your brother. It doesn't say if I have been wronged by my brother. Uh, it doesn't say that I need to go and make sure that he's right with me. It says if I remember that he has a reason to be angry with me. Now remember, we're talking about this whole concept of getting angry. And Jesus is say, says here, and what he's teaching here is that, you know what, I need to be mindful of his anger. Am I causing him to violate what Jesus just said? Right. Am I causing that person to be angry with me? Am I causing that person to have, have negative feelings towards me? A a am I doing something that's wrong? So here I am pretending to be right with God when I've been doing things wrong to them. I've been injuring somebody else. You see, that's the height of hypocrisy. No, leave your gift. Go get things right with your brother. Get these right. When we have uh, the Lord's Supper, um, one of the things we do is we have an invitation before we partake. There, there's a teaching about the Lord's Supper, and then before we partake of the Lord's Supper, we have an invitation. That's the opportunity for people to get things right. And if you, at that point, know that you've done something that caused somebody else to be angry with you, you you've done something that's separated between you know, your, your brother and you, if you've done something that you need to get right, that's the time. Yeah. And the whole purpose of that, uh, that, that, that invitation is to give people that opportunity to get things right. And I, I've heard stories of churches um, you know, doing a Lord's Supper and, and people coming forward and then you know, realizing that they, they have been fighting with someone in the church and, and you know, bickering and all this kind of stuff. And they go to that person and they come forward, they pray together and they get right and just God blessing that church through, through innumerable ways. All because people got right before they partook of the Lord's Supper. By the way, there's a warning in that. Uh, uh, the Apostle Paul, when he's writing to um, the Corinthians, he says this, many of you are sickly and some of you sleep. In other words, they died because they weren't practicing this properly. They were eating of the Lord's Supper unworthily, the Bible says. And this all has to do with this concept of my brother having something against me. You know, I need to be concerned about how other people see me. Now, look, if they're mad at me because I'm, I'm you know, trying to win them to the Lord, that's one thing. Yeah. I'm trying to help them. Right. You know, that's one thing. Right. But if they're mad at me because, you know, I'm, I'm short with them or because I, I uh, you know, lied to them or I, I cheated them somehow, you know, that's different. I need to get that right. right. You know, before I pretend to be right with God, I need to make sure that is right. I'm not doing something that is, that is causing them to be angry with me. Now notice what he says in the next, next uh, um, verses. 
He says, Agree with thine adversary quickly whilst thou art in the way with him, lest at any time the adversary deliver thee to the judge, and the judge deliver thee to the officer, and thou be cast into prison. This is verily I say unto thee, Thou shalt by no means come out thence till thou hast paid the uttermost farthing. Notice what he doesn't talk about here. He doesn't say anything about who's at fault. He doesn't say, Agree with thine adversary if he's right. He just says, Agree with your adversary. You know what? So you, you remember that your, your brother has a reason to be angry with you. And so you go and you talk to him, and he's like, you know what? I'm glad you're here. I'm going to take you to prison. I'm going to take you to the judge. We're going to sue you, and I, I'm going to get what I, what's rightfully mine. You know what? You could then sit there and argue. You know, well, yeah, yeah, you know what? I'm sorry I did that, but, you know, this is too much. This is too far. You, you're going way overboard. You know, you could sit there and argue. All that's going to do is make him more angry. So Jesus says the way to get around that, just agree with him. While you're there, while you're heading towards the, 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 the court, you know what? Disagree with him. You know what? You're right. I'll, I'll just pay. Disagree. Just, just, just settle it. You know what? Far too often we, we have this idea that, you know what? I'm due something. I'm owed something. Let me tell you, you know what? It'd be better to win your brother, to win that person, than to be right. You could win the battle and lose the war. Do the right thing. Now, I'm not saying that we, we have to, you know, <laughs> we have to take everything that everybody gives. Now, that's not what I'm saying. That's not the point at all. What I'm saying, though, is that when you're in the way, if, if we've caused him enough angst and anger that he is willing to go to court, you know what? Just agree with him. Pay him off. Just, just do it. There's been many times in churches that people have accused the church of doing things, and just, just, to, just to smooth things over, the church has said, look, fine, we'll just make this right. And sacrificially done so. And you know what? That's the right thing to do. That's the right thing to do. Um, just, just to smooth it over and, and let bygones be bygones. You say, but you lose money. You, you, you lose. You, you, you're paying for something that you don't have to pay for. You, you, whatever. You know what? It's okay. To win that person, that's okay. You know? Because here's the thing. He says that if you go and you get found guilty, you're going to be in prison and you're going to pay to the uttermost farthing. He's not going to hold, hold back. He's not going to give you a deal. He's not going to say, yeah, you know what, maybe I overreacted. No, he's not going to do that. He's going to make you pay to the last penny. He says, don't, don't go there. Our righteousness has to exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. The second example is found in verses 27. Oh, I've got to find my notes here. 27 through 30. Ye have heard that it, hath, that it was said by them of old time, thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you, that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. And if thy right eye offend thee, pluck it out, and cast it from thee. For it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish, and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. And if thy right hand offend thee, cut it off, and cast it from thee. For it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish, and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. It hath been said... Whosoever, whoop, that's the wrong, wrong thing. We'll stop at verse 30. Okay, so he says this is about lust. All right? Now, again, remember, these are personal issues that he's dealing with here. Um, he said the scribes and the Pharisees, they say, just don't commit adultery. Hey, as long as you don't commit adultery, it doesn't matter. Do whatever. You know? Jesus says no. He said if you look on a woman to lust after her, you have committed adultery with her. You've committed adultery. Um, <laughs> he says the guilt is on the observer. The one who's looking is the one who's at fault. That person 
is guilty of the sin. Alright. This was done in a day... There's, there's a couple of cultural things that were different of that day than are true of this day. First of all, the men had the power in the relationship. Okay? Um, it was possible for a woman to divorce her husband, but it was very difficult and it was very uncommon. Uh, for a woman to divorce her husband in those days um, was pretty much a guarantee that she wasn't going to ever get married again. And that was a bad place for a woman to be in uh, because all the income, all the land, all the stuff like that came through the male. You know, so she would not have like a place to live. She would, she, she would have to rely on the graces of her family, her extended family, her uncle, her, her uh, brother, her whatever. Um, you know, so in an instance like that, you know, it was not desirable for a woman to divorce her husband. Okay, um, but now if the whole town knew that the guy was a jerk, you know, that's different. You know, then you know she would be, you know, free and clear, and there would probably be no long-standing consequences of that. Again, not very common, very difficult. Um, but for a man, it was pretty simple. He just basically goes down to the priest, gets a, a writing of divorcement, um, signs it, takes it to her, gives it to her, and she's no longer his wife. And that was pretty much the extent of it. Now, there were people who believed that, um, that to keep that, that, that harmony in the home was so important that if there was anything, that, that affected that disharmony that the, the right thing to do was for the husband to divorce the wife. You know? So you know, she served him rye bread instead of uh, white bread. You know? Oh, you know, I don't know what, what, how you were raised, but man, this is just terrible. You know? And so he, he could write her a, a bill of divorcement for that. You know? She gave me rye bread. You know, can you believe that? You know, uh, that's perfectly fine. If, if he found that he was not attracted to her, he could divorce her. If, if he just didn't like the way she snored, <laughs> if, if she, whatever, it didn't matter. There are people who believe that in this day and time. All right. Now, this first part we're talking about is just about lust. So he's walking down the street and he sees a girl who has a pretty face and he's admiring this girl. And lusting after her. That's all on him. Even if he never does anything else, even if he never pursues her, even if he never does anything else, he is still guilty of adultery. Yeah. Alright? Now, this culture was a very modest culture. Let me deal with something that we deal with that wasn't true in those days. The concept of immodesty. In those days, women were covered. They wore clothes that covered them. From pretty much the top of the head to the, to the soles of their feet, they were covered. Anytime they were in public, except for the very, very poor uh, people, the women who had to work in the fields and stuff like that. But even then, all they would do is they would expose their arms and maybe their, their, the lower parts of their calves and, and, and ankles would be exposed as they're working in the fields. All right? But... That was it, right? Today, there's a lot of immodesty. There's a lot of people, and even Christians, who get mixed up in the fads and the, the fashions of this world. And they wear things that are revealing. They wear things that are provocative. They wear things that are, are purposefully 
immodest. I can't, they do it for a reason. I mean, there's a reason why they do it. All right? That's wrong. That's wrong. Now, they will say in their defense, well, you look, you know, just, just because I wear this doesn't mean that they have to look at me. If you're walking down the street, people are going to look at you. And if you're not wearing anything, guess what? They're going to look at you. <laughs> you know, um, and they're going to, they're, they're, some people are going to ogle you and they're going to, you know, whatever. You know, and it's not just females, by the way. You know, guys can wear pro- provocative clothing as well. They can wear immodest clothing as well. And as a Christian, we need to be careful that what we dress in and how we portray ourselves is not causing somebody else to fall. We need to be careful of that. I remember I was, uh, I was the principal of a Christian school. And I came downstairs and one of the teachers was talking with one of the young girls of our school. And I was just getting something, you know, to eat or drink. I don't remember exactly what I was doing, but I was just kind of, you know, monitoring things. And just out of the periphery of my, my listening to the conversation, I heard this teacher tell this young girl, oh, you've got to show a little leg if you want to catch a man. And the medium, I'm like, what? What are you telling this girl? In a Christian school, yeah, no less. You know, that is not how you attract a man. You know? And this idea that, that is of the world, that you know, Christians have to, have to attract people the same way the world does. You know what? You get what you're advertised for. If, you're, if, you're, you know what? if your lore is for bass, you know what? You're going to catch a bass. You know, if your lore is for you know, a sturgeon, you're going to catch a sturgeon. You know? You catch what you try to attract. That's what you do. You know, when, I make a, when you make a sign or you make an advertisement, you, know, you have a certain uh, population that you're trying to get to buy your product or try to come to your store or whatever. You know, so how you advertise is what you're going to attract. You know what? And if you are attracting people because of your leg, you know what? What kind of husband are you going to get? You know? Pretty soon, you're going to get a husband that's going to be looking at other people's legs. The main thing that he's talking about in this is about the men, because they were the ones who were in charge of this. But let's just say, in this day and age, we need to be careful as Christians that we do not cause other people to sin because of what we're doing. Now, the seriousness of this issue. (laughs) Um, He says in verse 29 and 30, he says, If your eye offend you, pluck it out. If your hand offends you, cut it off. Think about that. (laughs) That makes it pretty serious. I think Jesus was pretty serious about this. When he was saying that, you know what? If you can't keep yourself from looking at a woman and lusting after her, pluck out your eye. (laughs) If it's your eye that's causing the problem, pluck it out. Because you do better going in through life without an eye than to go into hell with the eye. By the way, this whole thing's true about salvation. You know what? There are plenty of people who won't go to church, who won't listen to this, or won't listen to the gospel, who, who turn their back on, on the offering of the gospel uh, for, for silly reasons, for, for silly things. You know, oh, I'm not going to listen to you because sometime in the past, somebody said something that made me upset. You're going to go to hell for that? You mean, you, you mean you're, you're going to spite God because of what somebody said sometime in the past, you probably can't even remember the, the incident, but you know, somebody said something that made you mad, and so you'll never, you're not, I'm not going to give God the time of day. You know what? 
Do you understand what you're saying? Do you understand the concept? Do you understand the consequences of what you're saying? You are willing to die and go and burn an eternal hellfire because somebody said something that makes you mad. Jesus said, if your eye offends you, if your eye is what's keeping you from being right with God, pluck it out. Cast it away. Get rid of it. You know what? If it's your job that keeps you from getting saved, get rid of your job. If it's the friends you hang around with that are keeping you from getting saved, get rid of your friends. Because it's better to not have those friends and go to heaven than to keep those friends and spend an eternity in a devil's hell, burning forever and ever and ever. See, people don't get this idea. They, they have kind of this idea that, you know what, God's judgment is not going to be that bad. Surely it's not going to be that bad. I mean, how can a loving God really give such a bad punishment? Well, the loving God is giving you a chance to get out. That's right. All expense paid. Right. You don't have to do anything for it. All you have to do is believe. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. You know what? It is bad. So bad that Jesus said, pluck out your eye, cut off your hand, and throw them away from you, because it's better to live life maimed than to live life whole and go to hell. It's a serious thing to Jesus. Now let's talk about divorce. The scribes and the Pharisees said, you know what? You know, you said that we, you know, if I'm looking at a woman to lust after her, you know what? All I have to do is just divorce my wife. And then I can just go marry whoever I want. This is their argument. So Jesus was now dealing with their argument. You know, so they said, just give her a writing of divorcement. And here's what Jesus said. He said, but I say unto you, verse 32, that whosoever should put away his wife, saving for the cause of fornication, causeth her to commit adultery. And whosoever shall marry her that is divorced, committeth adultery. He's saying, you know what? You want to just put them away. But if there's not a cause for that, and the only cause was fornication. So she was unfaithful to him. She, she uh, committed some type of, of sexual uh, indiscretion or sexual sin or something like that. You know what? That's the only cause that Jesus gave. Only one. He said, if, if you divorce her, you not only <laughs> cause yourself to commit adultery by marrying somebody else, but you cause her to commit adultery, and whoever marries her also to commit adultery. So he's like, you know what? You're just multiplying sin here. Yeah. You're just multiplying sin. Um, Jesus' um, guidelines regarding this topic, and I don't want to get into all this because, you know, I'm not trying to beat anybody up on this. I, I, I'm just pointing out that there needs to be a standard, and the standard is what the Lord says, not what the world says. The world is wrong on this issue. It's wrong. Jesus said, uh, what God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. In other words, it's not up to me. You know what? People go into counselors all the time and they say, we have irreconcilable differences. You know, uh, I married them when I was just out of high school, and I, and I, you know, and they have this, all this, this sob story. I never dated anybody else, and oh, 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 just poor me, poor me, you know, and and you know all this kind of stuff, and, and they have all these 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 reasons for why they should be entitled to a divorce. Problem is, what does God think about it? He says, what God has joined together, man doesn't have the right to put us under. 
I don't care what the justice of the peace says. I don't care what the judge says. I don't care. I don't care what uh, anybody says. If God has joined two people and made them one flesh, who is man to break that off? Well, I don't like the way he talks to me. <laughs> I remember I was at I was at work. I used I worked at the um, Children's Hospital, Oklahoma City, and um, one of uh, my coworkers was having trouble with her husband. I mean, her husband was a dentist. I mean, they had they had more money than they knew what to do with, right? And so um, she was having this trouble, and she was boohooing with uh, one of the other coworkers, and I was the only one working. <laughs> so I was a little perturbed anyway. But, um, so she comes up and, and you know, she says, what, what do you think about this? She goes, you know, um, I've always heard that, you know, if, if you have two trees that they need to kind of grow together. Otherwise, one tree will overshadow the other one, and this one would be hurt by the, by the other one. And he goes, and she was saying this in defense of getting divorced, you know, because this person, you know, he only thinks about himself, and, and he's all, you know, successful and all this kind of stuff, and she's unappreciated and, and withering under his shadow because she doesn't get any of the sun for herself, right? So that, that, that's her argument. I said, well... In the Christian tradition, you don't have two. You have one. I said, in our tradition, you are one flesh. And I said, if something hurts one, it hurts the whole. So I said, um, that's what we believe. That's what we teach. And she's like, oh, that's beautiful. <laughs> you know, and she got divorced. You know, so anyway, you know, so, you know, the whole, you know. She, she didn't listen to it anyway. But the whole point was that, you know what? People have this idea that, that they're two people. No, they're not two people. When you get married, you're one. You're one. And you know what? Just like you can't decide, you know what? My right side says, uh, I'm going to go this way. And my left side, I'm going to go this way. You know what? That's not going to happen. Same thing's true. You know what? If, if I had a couple right here and they, they were talking about divorce, <laughs> fix it. What God has joined, let not man put us under. You know what? Get yourselves in a room. You sit there and you talk and you fight about whatever you got to do. You you fix it. You just you just keep going and keep going and keep going until it's fixed. That's what you do. You know what? The time to wonder if this is the right person. It's before you're married. <laughs> you know that's what we need to do. We need to get back to the days where people actually thought about who they were marrying before they got married, and you know had counseling and all this type of stuff. Anyway. The person at work, well, she wanted me to marry her. I said, no, I'm not going to marry you. She goes, why not? I go, first of all, you're not a member of my church. <laughs> I said, I'm not going to marry somebody who's not a member of my church. And second of all, you know what? I don't know what you think about marriage. There's a lot of people that just think marriage is just a, a nice little ceremony that we have, you know? And it's kind of fun. It has memories, blah, 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 you know, all these things, you know? And that's not what it is to me. I said, I said, marriage is, is God joining two people from separate individuals to one person. I said, that's a big deal. And I'm not going to be part of that if, you, if that's not what you believe. And, you know, she was offended at that. She still is. She still reminds me, this person, he's a pastor. He wouldn't even marry me. You know? I'm like, <laughs> nope. <laughs> um, you know, that's, but that's the whole thing. You know what? God didn't call me to marry people, by the way. <laughs> God called me to preach the gospel. And you know what? Uh, whatever. I'm sorry. I'm getting on a different cause. God only recognizes fornication as a legitimate reason for divorce here. Anything else is not. And it's, you know, I'll just leave that where it is.
Then he says oaths. All right, I got to hurry because I'm already past time, but I'm going to get the last ones here done real quickly. The scribes and the Pharisees said, Thou shalt perform unto the Lord thine oaths. But Jesus said, Swear not at all. And he gives a list of things not to swear by. And here's the whole concept of it. When we make a promise and we swear on something, you know, I swear by whatever, fill in the blank, that I'm going to do what I said I was going to do. All right? Um, the problem with that is I don't have any power over <laughs> those things. You know, we say, I swear by God that I will, I will pay you when it's due. You know what? You have no control over God. You know, you can't, you can't change God. You know what? You could die tomorrow, and now you lied. You just made a vow, and you lied. Okay? Um, you know, all these people make these promises all the time, um, and they don't follow through. And that's a lie. That's a lie. Jesus said, don't swear. He said, let your yay be yay. And your nay be nay. In other words, if you say yes, they say, hey, will you come over and help me? Yes. That's your word. You just said it. Let that yay be yay. Let it mean yes, I will do it. All right? You know, if you don't want to do it, then say no. <laughs> yeah. You know, plain and simple. You know, I will not, I will not do whatever. You know, um, I will do this. I won't do that. Let your yea be yea and your nay be nay. Jesus said, anything more cometh of evil. So here's what he's saying. He said, these people that make all these promises, they're kind of giving themselves a way out. They're, they're trying to make promises so that they make themselves look good. You know, uh, pride. Or, or they're trying to have a wiggle room, you know, to come out, get out of it somehow. You know, a loophole. Well, you know, uh, God just wasn't willing for me to do that. You know, uh, you know, the, the rains came, the floods came, whatever. I couldn't fulfill my promise to you because it's all God's fault. <laughs> you know, whatever. You know, that's, that's the whole thing. That's of evil. If you said you're going to do something, then do it. If you say you're not going to do something, then don't do it. So that's where he's getting at. And that's the whole thing about oaths. Uh, retaliation. <laughs> the, the, the scribes and the Pharisees said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. In other words, you do something and it injures my eye, you know what? You've got to pay me with your eye. You've got to lose your eye, too. You know, knocks out a tooth, you've got to knock out a tooth, too. too. I mean, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Now, the, the system of, of laws that we had, had, <laughs> used to be based on that principle. Equity, fairness, you know, those words don't mean the same thing anymore. <laughs> and I'm not going to get political, so I'm just going to just mention that, you know, Fairness in, in law is no longer a thing in our country. So that's my only political statement I'm going to make today. And um, you can blame whoever you want. So um, the, the, the whole law system used to be based on that, but that's not the way it is anymore. But that's how it was under the scribes and the Pharisees. They would say, you know what, there has to be equal recompense, equal punishment. You do something that costs this much, then you owe this person that much. You know, period. But Jesus said this, resist not evil. <laughs> he said, resist not evil. He said, but whosoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek, turn to him the other also. If any man will sue thee at thy law, take away thy coat, let him have thy cloak also. Whosoever shall compel thee to go a mile, go with him twain. Give to him that asketh thee, and from him that would borrow of thee, turn not thou away. I mean, in other words, don't resist it. 
if someone's going to do something that's going to harm you, you know what? It's not up to you to stand up and say, you know what? Now you owe me. You know what? You did this to me. Now you owe me this much. That was the whole eye for an eye. Jesus said, resist not evil. If they hurt you, they turn the cheek, turn to the mother. You know what? Let them. Let them do it. Now, this is tough. This is tough. Well, it's not even so much about being a pacifist. It, it, it's just about the fact that, you know what? Vengeance belongs to the Lord. God will repay. It's not up to me to get what's fair. You know what? It's not up to me to get what's due to me. You know what? I'm just going to submit myself to the Lord. You know, and if evil comes my way, he knows about it. I'm going to let whatever happens happen. I'm just going to take it. And you know what? Hopefully by my suffering, uh, I can win some people around me. Hopefully I can be a testimony to other people that they will come to know the Lord. But God will repay. And he will repay a whole lot better than I can. And he's going to pay a whole lot better than the courts will because the, the lawyers are going to take their fair share, or more than their fair share, believe me. Um, you know, the whole point here is that it's not up to me to enforce this eye for an eye. It's not up to me to do that. It's up to me to be better than that and to not resist evil. Now, the last phrase doesn't have anything to do with retaliation. He said, if someone wants to borrow from thee, give it to him. This has to do with resisting being cheated. You know what? Yeah, sometimes that's, that's a little bit hard. But if you have it, loan it. And last one is love. He said, it hath been said of old time, love thy neighbor and hate your enemy. Hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. Pray for them which despitefully use and persecute you. That ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. Now notice this. He says us to love the enemies. They say love your neighbors, hate your enemies. That's their level of righteousness. Jesus says no. Love your neighbors. Love your enemies. <laughs> love your enemies. Pray for them that despitefully use you. And you know what? If they persecute you, do good to them. You know what? <laughs> Whatever it takes. You know, someone's mistreating you. Overcome their evil with good. <laughs> Do so much good for them that they can't treat you poorly. That they're going to feel bad if they treat you poorly. Yeah. You know what? Because you're just doing all this good stuff for them. Good works. You know? yeah, just, just overcome. I mean, uh, there was a guy that was uh, you know, tormenting uh, the pastor. He had a neighbor that was just, I mean, he would steal their tools out of their yard. He would let their dog dig holes in his yard. I mean, just all kinds of stuff like that. I mean, just... Just on and on. And, and finally, he's like, you know what? I'm starting to resent this guy. We need to make, make him a pie. <laughs> so they, they went, they made, wife made him a pie. And they went over and gave these people this pie. And he said, it was amazing how much a pie changed the relationship that we had with our neighbor. And you know what? They started taking care of their stuff, bringing the stuff back. You know, they started not letting their dog get in there. And all this thing. And eventually, he was able to lead that man to the Lord. You know, all because of a pie. Right. You know, just bringing the guy a pie. You know what? Do good to them that persecute you. God may use that for other things. But regardless, we're doing what the Lord wants us to do. And then he says this, that ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. For he maketh his son to shine on the just and the unjust. We think of a beautiful day. I mean, we think this is the blessings of God, right? Yeah. Uh, but if it's a rainy day, you go, oh, God's judging us. Oh, for us. Um, you know, but 
Jesus said he makes the rain come on the unjust and the just. On, on the good and the bad. I mean, God doesn't differentiate. He sends the sun on the same days. You know, it's not like all the Christians are working around in the sunshine while everybody else has the rain, right? You know, that'd be cool, but it's not the way it is. <laughs> you know, that's, that's not the way it is. You know, when, when it rains for the world, it rains for the Christians too. So we need to be like him. Be therefore perfect even as your father, which is in heaven, is perfect. He even uses an illustration of the wicked. He says, if you salute only your friends, don't the publicans do the same? How are you better than that? <laughs> you know, you're no better than that. So we need to exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees and the scribes. The end of this is that we cannot be righteous apart from Jesus, apart from what Jesus does in our heart. Now, as Christians, we need to try to live up to this standard. We need to not resist evil. We need to you know, be faithful, and we need to keep our, our purity and our, our personal righteousness what it's supposed to be. You know, we need to be above bore in everything that we do, that there be no appearance of evil. You know, as Christians, we need to strive for that level. Now, we're, nobody's perfect. I mean, we're not all going to achieve that, but we can all be striving for that and increasing in our, in our walk with the Lord and our growth and maturity as Christians. Um, so every day we, we strive a little bit harder, we get a little bit better, we get a little bit stronger, we have more faith, we, we exercise more personal righteousness. Uh, and that's the whole goal, goal in the Christian life, is to be more like Christ. You know? But we won't have the power to do that without Jesus. If he's not in here, if he hasn't cleansed the heart, if the Holy Spirit's not in there scrubbing away at the wickedness in our hearts and our minds, you know what? <laughs> We're just going to not be able to succeed in this. So, trust the Lord. Walk with him. Let him to change you. Study your Bible. Read your Bible. It's going to cleanse your mind and your heart in so many ways. Thank you for joining us on New Testament Talk. New Testament Talk is a publication of New Testament Baptist Church in Manchester Center, Vermont. If you would like to talk with us in person, visit our Facebook page, New Testament Baptist Church NTBC. That's New Testament Baptist Church NTBC. Until next time, this is Pastor Fred Roberts reminding you of the greatest truth of the New Testament. The truth can be known God wants you to know it, and when you receive it, you will be saved. The truth is this, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved.